0: What is up, everybody? I'm technically one minute early, so the awkward time frame where no one is on a live video and I'm just monologuing to myself is justifiable this time. You'd think that after uh, doing radio and sports talk shows and monologuing to myself in college that uh, this would be normal, but it's really weird and uh, something that I'm not quite used to yet. So... uh, Get on here at eight to make it less awkward for me. Pander to my sensitivities, please. I hope you guys are doing well, um, this Monday morning. And one of the things that has really been enjoyable for me in doing this is, uh, I've told you guys that kind of the reason why I'm doing this is to, to open up the window into what my own devotional life looks like, which look, it's, it's not fantastic. It's not sensational. Um, it's really mundane. And I was just sharing this with my community group last Tuesday um, that really hasn't been until the last like two years where, oh, my mic isn't on. Haha! now my mic is on. Can, now you can hear me, I think. Um, so hopefully you either heard what I said earlier or realized it wasn't that important. Um, but anyway, as I was saying, This is just a window into my devotional life, and I was sharing with my community group on Tuesday, just how it hasn't been until the last uh, couple years of my life where I really feel like, apart from studying God's Word to preach it, that I've realized that God's Word is good for me. Um, And that's been a long process. I've been a Christian for, um, you know, 20-plus years at this point, and uh, Bible reading and devotional reading was always a struggle for me, and God's been really gracious. I think what's happened is, is two things is, uh, first, I've gotten better at understanding the story of Scripture. Those of you who have been at Sovereign Help the last few weeks, you've kind of seen how we've progressed through the story of Scripture and beginning to see Jesus in places where, at first glance, we don't see Jesus. Not in a way that's mystical or um, mysterious, but in a way that's that's true, that themes of the New Testament develops. And so seeing the story of Scripture helps us understand Scripture better, um, which sometimes involves reading broader swaths of scripture in the Old Testament instead of just narrower ones so we could see the whole picture. Um, but the other thing that's helped me is is realizing that uh, devotions are ordinary. Um, i illustration on uh, Tuesday too. Like there are times where an intentional night out with my wife is good and great and needed and it's thought through and it's set aside and it's distinct. Um, but there are times where just coffee in the morning for that moment before kids wake up and where we're not necessarily talking about the, the deepest parts of life but I get to commune with my wife um, is wonderful and morning devotions especially if you uh, work early you have kids um, you're going to and from classes is we don't always get in a morning an entire date night with God but we can get coffee with God like this is God's word he he speaks to us we don't have to to conjure God's presence we don't have to conjure God's word it's like we open the door and he's there um, and so seeing that that's good for me, there's a sweet communion just in reading God's word has really helped me. And and what's been really sweet and, and trying is, is this Monday morning devotional thing, because I um, read this probably just about half an hour ago. And uh, there are times where when I'm reading it on my own, I'll read it through. I'll think on it for a little bit and then I'll get up and move on. But actually in preparing for this, it forces me to actually articulate something from the text. It forces me to wrestle with the text in ways where even in my own devotional life, uh, I can cut things a little bit short because I count having read the text as the sufficiency of it instead of actually dwelling on the text. And so this um, has been a good principle for me. I hope it's been a blessing for you. And so we're just continuing on reading uh, through the F260 Bible Reading Plan, which is something we're doing at Sovereign Hope. If if you haven't got on that yet, you can find resources on our website for that. Uh, We have just finished last week First Samuel, and now we're starting Second Samuel today, and so we're in Second Samuel uh, 1 and 2, and I'm going to give us just a, a brief summary of what we looked at today. Um, on Wednesdays, when you join our Bible reading group, you don't have to have read anything to join. Um, we read it there, but on this Monday morning thing, you also don't have to have read to have joined in. I'm not checking your homework um, but I'm just going to summarize the text. So if you have time to read it before this, that is great. If not, and you're just listening, that's kind of why we start with a summary. And so we ended 1 Samuel um, chapter 31 with the death of Saul. And historically in the Hebrew Bible, First and Second Samuel, um, were all part of one book. And so it's not until the Greek translation came along that it was split into two books just for the sake of kind of categorizing stuff. And so uh, when what, we're what picking up in the middle of or when we're picking up in the first chapter of 2 Samuel, we're really still in the, the, the middle of, of Samuel as a whole. And so Saul dies in 1 Samuel 31, and we're going to come back to that significance. And what happens in 1 Samuel 1 is uh, uh, a man, someone from Saul's camp after this battle where Saul and his, his son have died escapes to David and tells David, hey, I came from the battle of Israel. Um, the, the Israelites have fled. Saul and his son are dead. And then um, David grieves, and he he presents to David, this Amalekite servant, presents to David the the kind of royal garb of Saul to prove that he's actually fallen. And what we see immediately that we'll come back to is David actually kills the messenger, and that's important and significant. We'll come back to that, Um, but kind of first reading it's what's going on here. And then we see this lament, we see this psalm from David, uh, who we we see is quite the poet at heart, kind of the warrior poet is what he's called, wrote a lot of the psalms. He gives this really emotional psalm, both to Saul, but specifically towards Jonathan, um, grieving the loss of King Saul and his sons. And then, now that King Saul is done, we begin to see some more political drama. So, David um, inquires of the Lord and he goes down to the southern part of the nation of Israel um, into the land that was given to Judah. And the men of Judah come together and they appoint David as king over Judah. And it's not over all Israel at this point because uh, Saul from the tribe of Benjamin, um, Abner, who is Saul's military general, takes Saul's remaining son, Ishbosheth, and he appoints him king as the enduring line of Saul. And that and he becomes king over Benjamin and the other tribes, and so we have kind of the beginnings of this civil war starting between David and his kingdom in the south and the kingdom of Ishbosheth in the north, and we see that war unfold in the back half of, half of chapter two, where there is a battle between Abner, who is the general of Saul, loyal to Ishbosheth, or yeah, Abner, um, general of Saul, loyal to Ishbosheth, and then um, from Joab, who's the commander of David, loyal to David, and there's this battle, and it's uh, kind of depressing, kind of sad, a lot of death, a lot of uh, killing of their own brothers. And it ends with kind of the stalemate after Joab's brother was killed by Abner. And that's going to be significant for what I'm assuming we're going to read um, tomorrow. I don't actually know what tomorrow's reading is. So the story, Saul's dead. David's appointed king in Judah. Saul's remaining son is appointed king in the rest of Israel. And we see a civil war beginning to start. And so with that, we do the three questions. Uh, we look up, what does this text teach us about God? We look in, what does this teach us about ourselves? Um, and we look out, how does this change the way we live? Because all theology is practical. Anytime we're looking at God, anytime we're assessing ourselves, it's going to change things on the outside. So in looking up, this was, I wrestled with this today. I don't know if you guys were able to read. Um, but the first time I read this, I was like, what am I going to talk about with this? Because, um, there's really only one involvement of God, and that's where David kind of appeals to God as this uh, cosmic GPS at the end. And he's like, where should I go? And God says, go to Judah. And then he's like, where should I go in Judah? And God says, go to Heshbon. And like, that's the involvement we have with God in this text. And yet, what we see is we see God's immense sovereign power. And we see this in two ways. Uh, if you remember, I think it was three days ago in First Samuel 28, or three readings ago, uh, Saul goes and consults with the witch of Endor instead of waiting for, um, it's always a problem. God's people don't like waiting for God's timing and Saul gets anxious. And at the eve of a big battle, and instead of waiting for confirmation from God, because the typical ways of connecting with God have not yielded clear results. Saul goes to a witch, to a necromancer and, uh, consults this witch, which is immensely displeasing to God. And uh, the funny thing about this is that Saul goes to a witch to call up Samuel, knowing that Samuel is the one who's banished the witches. And he goes to a witch and calls up Saul, which just shows you how silly our sin really is. But because of this, um, Samuel predicts that Saul's line will be ended, that Saul and his sons will die in battle. And sure enough, not long after that, we get to the end of 1 Samuel where Saul dies and Jonathan dies in battle. Um, God is true to his word. God is sovereign over everything that's going on. And his sovereignty doesn't manifest itself immediately, but it does manifest itself always. And on the flip side, we see that with David. It was First Samuel 16, much longer ago that David was anointed as king. And there are times in this narrative where you're certainly wondering, did God make a mistake? is David ever going to be king? It just seems like this game of cat and mouse with Saul. But here in this text, David is finally appointed king, at least of Judah, right? The kingship promise that God gave David is finally coming to fruition, even though it didn't happen immediately. God is sovereignly working in all of this history to show that it is progressing precisely according to God's plan. And we also see um, the goodness of God's plan in here. If you remember, uh, we looked at this three weeks ago on Palm Sunday, and we looked at Jesus is the king. Uh, God always designed to rule his people through a king, but the king was always going to be God himself. So instead of um, waiting for God's king, or recognizing God as king, the people demanded a king of their own choosing on their own timeline. And that has brought nothing but problems so far. And we're going to begin to see those problems manifest itself all the more today through this civil war that's going to continue through the next part of 2 Samuel. Because God's people desired a king to look like the other nations and to fight their battles for them, there's going to be a lot of pain. And it's going to be bloodshed. In the next few chapters, our hearts are going to break at the amount of Israelite blood that is shed by Israelite hands, all for the battle of the kingdom. And I think that shows the danger of our sin. Like we go to sin thinking it will give us what we want. But on the on the flip side of the coin, it's drenched in often our own blood. It fails to satisfy us. If only we would be patient enough to wait for God's timeline and trust that when God gives these wonderful promises, right, these promises we've looked at for the last three weeks in in Revelation where every tear will be wiped from our eye, well, God will establish his perfect king, the slain, the lamb who stands though as slain will rule over the nations and there'll be the new tree of life and its tre- its leaves will be healing for the nations. We see that promise and yet so often we go to the trees of this world. We go to the healing of the nations instead of God's chosen healing of the nations. And we think, because like it did for Saul, like it did for all the people who wanted a king, we think that the immediacy of man is better than the sovereignty of God. And so we look at God and we see his goodness. He is faithful to judge like he judged Saul. He is faithful to um, make true on his blessing like he did for David. And we see that God's blessing is always for our good if we would only trust him. And God's given us his word. As we're reading this, we're reading the story of our own hearts, right? We see that we are sometimes David, we are sometimes Saul, and yet we see God's grace. He is worthy to be trusted. He is worthy to be deferred to when we're wrestling with uh, extended stay-at-home dates, when we're wrestling with seasons of singleness or grief or depression or hard seasons with little kids in the house. Um, God is still good in that. And he's willing or he's worthy of all of our trust inside of that. So that was looking up. Um, And kind of seeing God where he was absent and yet seeing what God was accomplishing in the midst of that. And we get to looking in. And this also was unique. I read this probably two or three times because uh, the first thing, there's this discrepancy, isn't there? If you read 1 Samuel 31, the account of Saul's death looks like this. Saul has been shot by an archer. He knows he's not going to be able to fight. And so he goes and his enemies are closing in. So he goes to his sword bearer and his armor bearer he says hey kill me and the armor bearer um, is like probably not a good thing to have on my resume that i killed the king of israel and so he says i'm not going to do this and so saul falls on his own sword um, he kills himself um, so that he doesn't endure the shame of being killed by the philistines and then saul's armor bearer sees that and he's like this is going to get pinned on me and so he takes his own life and so again he sees this compounding just sorrow that that The the death of a king is causing the unnecessary death of those who are around him. Um, God's chosen king will be so much better than this. But that's the account in in 1 Samuel 31. And then we get to 2 Samuel 1. And we meet this guy. We don't know much about him. We know he's an Amalekite who is kind of converted to Judaism, right? He's a sojourner in the land of of Judah. And he comes to David and he gives a different story. And uh, the story is this. He found Saul leaning on his spear, kind of exhausted, tired, wounded, we see later on in the story. And he says, Saul cried out to this Amalekite. He said, cut me down so that I don't have to be killed by my enemy. And the guy says, I I saw that Saul, um, after he had fallen, he could not get back up. And so I stood over him and I killed him. Um, And uh, I brought you his stuff, David. Now, uh, what do we do when we have discrepancies like this in scripture? well uh, a good rule of thumb is to always trust the narrator okay and so here in second samuel one we have a character telling a story and in first samuel 31 it's the author of first samuel who's telling us the story and so we want to assume that the narrator is right and then we want to come back to this story and we want to say what benefit would this sojourner have of telling a story like this and i think at this point it's kind of clear There's been this tension between Saul and David. Saul has finally fallen. And here's this man who's not a full Israelite. He is low on the totem pole in Israel. And now he says, aha, David, the one who is fighting with Saul, um, is finally free. And I get to be the one who, at, at one sense, comes to David and says, oh, what a grace that I killed Saul. But also, you think he's thinking, this might earn me some favor in David's book. I honorably killed David's enemy, and I have brought to him the vestments of royalty, the crown and the armaments of Saul. How will I be received? Right? He's making up this story, and the truth is what happened. He probably just found Saul's dead body, grabbed the the the, the crown and the armaments, and ran to David. And uh, But he thinks that through his works, he's going to be able to please the king. And yet what happens is that his works actually earn him death. Because to David's point, he should have been like the armor bearer. No, if this is God's king, you don't get the option to kill him. Life is precious to God. And you don't get to kill anyone for the sake of just simply them asking you to, and certainly not the Lord's king. And so David recognizes this and he says, you yourself said that you boasted about killing the Lord's king. You, You deserve to be executed. And so he was executed. So what does this have to do with us? Um, Well, I think there are so many times in our life where we can go to God and we recognize all of our weaknesses. We recognize that when we think of the saints of faith, we think of Hebrews chapter 12, that we are nothing but a sojourner. We don't belong here. And so we could go to him and we could boast in our works. Ah, Look at what I have done. Look at what I have done to present to you. Wouldn't it be nice for you to have me on your team? Haven't I earned the right to be in your court? But so long as we're boasting on our works, it leads only to death. But to appeal to the grace of the king and the fear of the king to say, "This I, I went to Saul, and this is what I found. He was dead. Would have been a completely different story for the Amalekite. And so for us, man, how easy is it in our relationships, in our careers, and certainly in our walk with God, to turn Bible reading, to turn prayer, to turn church, to turn, like, saying no to token sins, and to some sort of boast that we can present to God, hoping to find, you know, royal reward. But in the end, we're boasting in false things, because we, those things are never good enough to earn standing before God. And here he was going to his king, relying on what he has done, thinking he had to contrive this story, or to just go to the king with the truth of probably his fear and his brokenness. And my guess is at this point, he wasn't fighting. He wasn't involved in the battle. There was a sense of shame in what was going on. He was probably just going through the the bodies of the deceased, looking for, you know, trinkets to gather. And yet he would have been accepted by grace. And so... Um, When we look at our own hearts, it challenges us. May we not be like this Amalekite boasting in our works, but may we trust that our good king accepts us because he was slain for us. He was the king who was killed for his broken, wandering servants. And secondly, um, we see David all throughout the back half of of 1 Samuel. David is waiting on God's timing, right? He had times and times again where he could have killed Saul and taken the kingdom. But David knew what this Amalekite didn't, that he shouldn't kill the Lord's anointed, even though he was anointed by God in 1 Samuel 16 to be the next king. David, unlike the rest of Israel, was willing to wait on God's timing. And we see that. And in our mind, we would think this, everything, now that now that David has waited, right? He he mourns over the death of Saul because he loved Saul. He loved Jonathan. um, But also his hands were clean. None of Israel would have thought David was conniving against Saul because they knew of how gracious he was. He knew he passed up opportunities. His blood or his hands were completely clean of any sort of treason against Saul. And now we think David has waited for God's timing. He's done what the theology textbook says we should do. We trusted in God's sovereignty. The rest of his life is going to just be roses. But that's not what we see, right? He waited on God's timing. And what happens afterward? This bloody, terrible civil war. And so many times I think we get frustrated because we think that because we've done right, that God will just reward us with ease in life. But we see that even in David's life, that that's not what following Jesus looks like. It, is, it was good for David to trust and obey on God's timeline, but that doesn't mean that everything's going to go easy for us. It means, just like David, that after this happens, we go to God and we say, what do you want me to do from here? Where do you want me to go? And kind of in these next few chapters and specifically in the early stages of, of David's kingdom in the divide, like with this, this early onset civil war is he is so quick to go to God and we need to do that too. Where it seems like I'm, I'm doing everything right. God, I'm, I, you know, I work, I'm, I'm not gossiping. I'm doing my work on time. It just seems like I'm getting neglected. I'm not getting the, the respect or the opportunities I feel like I deserve. God called David is a model here that nothing's changed. That we still continue to trust God and do good, even if the reward isn't immediate. Because just as it was with David from 1 Samuel 16 to 2 Samuel 1, God will make good on his promise. And for us, it might not be in this life, but we know it will be true in the next life. And so when it comes to us, are we able to trust God and keep moving forward, even when it seems that our obedience is not being rewarded in the way we would like? Or like David, we have. We've become kind of partial king of this kingdom. And it's still hard and it's still difficult, right? Sin is never fully going to be eradicated in our hearts. Nothing in this world is ever fully going to satisfy us. So will we be faithful to keep clinging to God until all of the promises are yes and amen at the final resurrection of the dead? So looking in, do we boast in our works or do we trust that our king will accept us based off of um, his grace? And then do we wait for God and expect God to reward us? Or do we wait for God and do we continue to wait for God and entrust ourselves? Uh, what we'll see in First Peter, do we entrust ourselves to a faithful Savior while doing good? That's it. Do we entrust ourselves to a faithful Savior by doing good? That's the call of the Christian. And then... Looking out, okay? So we've looked up, we've seen God's power, we've seen the goodness of God's plan, we've looked in, we've seen not to trust in our works, and we've seen the, the need of relying on God, and now we look out. Um, again, kind of a unique thing, because we're reading history, we're not reading specific teaching, uh, but I saw two things I'd love to hear. If you guys have read this, you can maybe throw it in the comment or something like that. Um, in looking out, I noticed two things. One is, is rather timely, and that is respect for government officials. Um, I am a, it's, it's a weird Facebook world to be in right now um, especially as I, I pray that we as a church would have friends on all sides of the political spectrum and getting on Facebook it just seems like a bunch of people playing the different notes out of tune loudly together uh, and we saw in Saul Saul was not a good king he was not a faithful king he was not kind to David. He did not seek David's well-being. And yet David respected the office of king. And we might say, well, well, that's God's king. Of course, if, if there's God's king, if there's an anointed king, uh, we would respect him. But if anyone had the ability to not respect him, it is the newly anointed king, King David. But we also see in places like Romans and, and in First Peter. Um, First Peter, God says to respect the emperor because he does not bear the sword in vain. God has given him that power and given him that authority. In our current news cycle with COVID-19 and election year, it's it's easy to not just voice, um, not just use our right to free speech to express concern over um, political philosophies where there's Christian liberty, and yet um, there are ways that we think is right and we could actually be disrespectful. Um, We could actually be hostile our hearts could actually be murderous towards what's going on and and disgusting and not a good show of how we should actually treat government officials and i think that's something um that i I would err on the side of just being silent and because i'm like god's in control again in the end but there there are times where when i think things are right i ought to speak up Um, but also the manner in which we speak should be distinct as christians and it's distinct because we know who stands behind we know the god who stood behind saul and if God stood behind Saul he could stand behind whoever the elected official is that we are um, rallying against and so that doesn't mean we we lose the right to um, speech um, but it means that our speech is ultimately trumped by the call of God to consider others were more, more worthy of ourselves to speak the truth and love to do. the Bible trumps the Constitution it really does our Constitution of our heart has been changed through the gospel and so do we um, do we have this respect that David had, even though there's much relief in Saul being dead, where we recognize that God is in control and that God uses even emperors. I think it's we see this in, in uh, is it uh, First Timothy? He uses emperors to accomplish common good and to limit suffering. So even if those people are fallen, um, especially in America, when you consider the governments that are out there, what a privilege we have here. And then we also see this friendship with Jonathan that David has, um, really intimate, we see at the end there, kind of awkward to read. Um, but what I love about Jonathan and David is they, they became friends kind of early on when uh, there, was, there was not this rift between Saul and David. And yet that friendship continued as, the, as David and Saul began to grow apart. And I always say this with our college students, the difference between friendship and discipleship is that friendship reaches across and discipleship reaches down. Um, And so friendship goes to what is easy. Um, Discipleship always crosses some sort of barrier. And we see David and Jonathan's friendship started as friendship, right? They're co-equals. They're fighting together in Saul's army. There was no rift. But then as that rift happened, um, they maintained friendship. And we saw a few weeks ago, um, Saul is rebuking Jonathan for siding with David. He said, don't you realize, Jonathan, that David poses a risk to your throne? You are my son. You would be king after me, not David. But Jonathan says, Does Poppycock? God is called David. Jonathan recognizes the truth of God's work in the person of David, and he filters his entire friendship through that. And so things change in our relationships with people. Um, Distance, you know, uh, speaking of GCF students, when they have friends, they get married, they're going to be friends, but relationships are going to change. But this shows how important it is, like David and Jonathan, to have at the center of our friendship, not just the sameness that we share but actually the truth of God that we share. Because when our relationships are centered on the gospel, circumstances will change, but the nature of that friendship won't. And that's true discipleship, because it continues to reach across, you know, social, economic, racial, um, uh, relational differences, and to continues to pull people together. Um, David and Jonathan spent more time apart in the end than they spent together. And yet when they're together, there is deep rejoicing over what God is doing in the life of David. And so too might we disciple others by by realizing that our sports preferences might change, our neighborhoods might change, but the grace we share in Jesus Christ will not change. And so let's talk about that with our friends. Let's communicate with that, even in this area of social distancing and ask how how's your soul, right? Um, David and Jonathan are deeply concerned, not just about, um, they have so much to talk about right david's or jonathan's dad is trying to kill david they could just talk about that but they they speak to each other's souls they remind each other of god's truth and i pray that we can do that too in looking at this text so look up god is sovereign god is good look in don't trust in works um wait on god and expect to continue to wait and look out um, check our hearts and how we view government officials, and then also consider what discipleship looks like. Are we building relationships that can handle um, the change of social, economic, relational things? Because the gospel is at the center of it. So, um, let me pray for us, and then uh, I will let you guys go as I've um, as we as we get to on with our Monday morning. So, Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that in something that seems as simple as a story uh, in. 2 Samuel 1, a story that is kind of interesting and unique to read. We read of God's immense grace towards his people. Um, We see a God who's working for his good and and holding out for us the promise of good if we would simply trust him, even when times seem hard. Lord, I pray that our churches will be filled with um, Jonathans and Davids. But more importantly, Lord, I pray that we are the ultimate Jonathan to the ultimate David that our hearts are bound to our King because we realize uh, a kingdom of our own is nothing compared to being in the kingdom of the greater David, Jesus Christ. And may that open up our lives to invite others in as well. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks guys. We'll talk to you later.